that no one's being taught to monetize their gifts, to monetize their skills. Yes. They're taught to look for a job to go into the corporate system, and that corporate system just doesn't exist anymore. We all have to get to a point where we're going to create our own vocation just to have the money to get by. Welcome to the Create and Grow Rich podcast. Now, here's your host, best selling author and award winning teacher, Janine Letford. Hi, I'm Janine Letford, intercultural creativity keynote speaker. And this is the Create and Grow Rich podcast, produced by Cafe Strategies, an industry leader in intercultural creative thinking and idea inclusion training. Most people don't know that your creative health affects your financial wealth and your company's bottom line. So if you're looking to increase your creative thinking capacity, as well as your financial outlook, then this podcast is for you. On the Create and Grow Rich podcast, we bring you successful entrepreneurs and top creative thinkers who exemplify that creative thinking isn't just artistry, but encompasses so much more. And it's for everyone. For the show notes for this show and for tips on improving your intercultural creative thinking with the 16 Diamond Tools of Creative Thinking and the 7 Gems of Intercultural Creativity, go visit cafestrategies.com. C-A-F-F-E strategies.com. Now enjoy the show. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Create and Grow Rich podcast. As always, I am bringing you top thought leaders in in the different fields from around the world. And today I have with me Justin Colella, who is a lifetime entrepreneur, philosopher, activist, producer, and philanthropist. He started his first company at the age of 19 and has been self-employed ever since. I got to know about that. He's currently the president at Commission Enterprises and with associate companies that engage in guerrilla marketing and direct sales for for Fortune 50 and Fortune 500 clients. But I know him as the founder and executive director of the international nonprofit called Hustle for Humanity. And he has just been doing an amazing work there. And I can't even really go into the awesomeness who this man is. And I'm so excited to have him on the show. He's going to give you more of a better background so you can know who you are basically in conversation with. Welcome to the Create and Grow Rich podcast, Justin. Thanks so much for having me, Janine. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So let's um, just really enlighten our audience to who you are and what you've been doing. Sure, absolutely. So um, I was an interesting story, like going through school when I was growing up. I'll tell you a little bit of the background of how I got into entrepreneurship. Uh, But what happened is I was getting, you know, straight A's all through uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, and all that. And when we got around to graduation time, I, I noticed that there was a trend where everybody in my graduating class, you know, I graduated in 2001, so I'm only in my mid-30s, but a lot of people were, everybody was going to university, right? It was almost like there were 650 people in my graduating class, and it could easily have been 90 or 95% that were going on to community college or to the four-year university at that time. So I was looking for kind of a niche. I was seeing a lot of trends. Uh, the more I learned in school was from kind of my ROP, small business management ownership class. I learned more from that than the traditional uh, education tools that were there. But they were telling everybody that you can only really be successful in this paradigm if you go to college. And a lot of my friends had seen various people and, and friends and family had started businesses and done vocations and different trades, but I couldn't understand why everybody was being pushed into the college paradigm. Uh, so I went to, you know, take the test for SATs and all that. And I realized that we had to, couldn't just go to college and learn what we want to learn or go for business administration. I had to relearn all the basics and get the necessary credits and credentials. So uh, I made a choice basically my senior year that I would just go right into 
into the working field or go right into business. And so I started out working commission sales. I was doing commission sales like while I was in school, while I was my senior year. And then later on, I uh, just decided to start a business. And so we kind of started a business after that. I had been doing some cell phone sales, direct sales in the mall. I had seen young entrepreneurs start their own cell phone store. So me and a friend at that time started a partnership and did direct sales. And we got contracts with some of the local newspaper companies and media conglomerates to do uh, to outsource their sales teams. And uh, that right off the bat was profitable and we could see that we could make money. Now, a lot of the friends that went to school, they ended up after graduation getting in hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And then later on, they were kind of prepared for a world that doesn't, didn't no longer existed. Um, so I, I, I kind of realized that for me, being a kind of an ENTJ personality type that was kind of more honed towards leadership, it was easier to create a vocation than to kind of look for one that fits you. A lot of the jobs that were out there didn't pay that much. And then when we looked at the economic aspect of it later on, I'll get into that in a little, little while of like the, the numbers, but we started a company and basically we contracted with Fortune 50 and Fortune 500 companies to do their direct sales, things like door-to-door, -door, event marketing, kiosk. Later on, I went back to the cell phone industry and we started our own cell phone stores. Um, we had a chain of like kiosks in the malls. We had a chain of uh, direct inline stores and things like that. And then after many years of doing that, I started a uh, 501c3 nonprofit. I kind of wanted to, rather than helping a Fortune 50 company get bigger, I wanted to focus on human rights and kind of a professional way to do activism. And that is what was the birth of Hustle for Humanity, which today has 26 chapters around the world and is hopefully uh, growing as best we can. Amazing. And so there's so much there because as an educator, you know, it's, I feel this, uh, I'm torn, you know, because I love education, of course, and we really need to be clear on those definitions. You know, I think this is a time where we're really redefining some of these key terms, right? Education, creativity, what does that look like in this new climate? But as you said, yeah, we're kind of told college is the only way. And I don't think that's fair to people who choose different routes, you know, that there's less of a support system for that. So now my new quote is, university isn't for everyone, but higher learning is. Excellent. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Because it seemed like you had the ability to sell. And I don't, mm -hmm. I don't care if you're going to college, if you do to choose a different route, if you could grow that ability to sell, mm -hmm. you're set. How did you grow that ability to sell straight out of high school? Well, I think uh, genetically it's possible that I, I my, my father was a, a big salesman and he had done door-to-door -door sales his whole life and got into sales management. Now he worked more on the corporate side, wasn't really an entrepreneur uh, per se. He was just on the corporate side of that. But I kind of learned from him and, and other family as well. My family was from the East Coast. They were kind of savvy with that. And more, uh, they, they were, you know, immigrant family. My grandparents came from Italy. So I grew up seeing a lot of the sales stuff happening. I think I walked with my father door to door when I was a little kid watching him, you know, make these commission sales for like the cable company. So I think a lot of that was ingrained in me. And then later on, uh, when I looked at what was the easiest thing to do? Speaking, communication was kind of a skill set that was good for me. So sales was naturally tuned to me. And so, uh, you know, Plato was a, a great thinker of, of that everybody was their, a genius in their own regard. So it's almost like if we look at the education system today, they're kind of trying to force everybody into a cubicle uh, towards the same skill set. What everybody has many different skill sets, but we haven't, we don't have a, yet a custom education system that can identify people's innate skills and then help them nurture that. And, and like you said, higher learning comes from, you know, your own search. So it's like Mark Twain had a great quote where he said, uh, learning takes place in the mind, not in the classroom. 
So if we, if we have, a, that's what we're trying to do also with the nonprofit is help create a world where we can identify people based on their Myers-Briggs personality type. We can customize a new education system for them so that at a young age, regardless of what parents tell their kids they need to do or, or et cetera, or any society tells them what they need to do, we can identify what their natural talent is and their natural genius and society, the Commonwealth can help cultivate that. There's a lot of people that no matter how good, let's say some of us might be at sales or marketing or, or graphic design, someone else might be, I mean, no matter how much, let's say uh, I go to school or any of us go to school to learn how to draw, I'm a terrible artist. I'm a terrible painter. I can't go to school and learn how to paint. And that's what we're trying to do. It's almost like we're, we're losing throughout society today, a lot of Leonardo da Vinci's stuck in cubicles. Whereas if we let them figure out what their talent was, we could, you know, benefit. Uh, yes, that's so good. And that's really what I say when I talk to my students at my nonprofit. I was like, you know what, I apologize as an educator because I don't think we really stopped to ask you, where are you gifted? Or the metaphor that I'm using, you know, where are your diamonds? And I had that that question because I believe that we're all carrying diamonds. They look like rocks for a lot of us. So we don't really identify the value. And it's as educators, parents and mentors, it's our job to really help the kids identify their, their diamonds to buff them off and to cut them so they shine wherever they, they go. But yeah, we're, that's a great we're, way to put it. We're, we're not really having them reflect. We're just having them go through the standards. So I just love the fact that you are in tune with that, with your organization of having Thanks, people really reflect. So, but I, I am going to talk more about your organization sure, later, sure. later, but I really wanted to get into your brain, your, your genius brain. And I love the fact also that you talked about that genius is in everyone. How do you define creativity in your life and how does it show up? So, and you know that I don't mean necessarily artistry, sure. but sure. creative thing, thinking. I think creativity comes from naturally being able to think outside the box. So if you're told, you know, if you're told, one thing in society that you have to go into this vocation or you have to do this path, being able to kind of cut out your own path and, and getting over the fear, the fear of what society says and the fear of uh, what the previous generation said was success. That's where it comes from. And I think for a lot of people, you know, me hiring, we've hired, jeez, uh, I don't know, at least at least 1300 people over the last 17 years. And there was a lot of time, you know, remember a lot of this is like 1099, work, things like that, people being self-employed, we're hiring people to do their own uh, 1099 direct sales, to go work on commission sales. And for a lot of them, it was very successful and people made a lot of money and they've been able to do it uh, with more longevity than other careers. But getting past that, uh, for them, even for their families sometimes was like they didn't understand. They thought, oh, a 1099 job or a self-employed type job was not uh, stable. But then we're learning that, you know, all these companies that myself and other colleagues and other people have worked for, the higher up you go the ladder, it's almost like a ticking time bomb to when you're going to get the, uh, the position's going to be removed or the company's going to merge with another company, et cetera. How many times have we seen like even vice presidents or chief executive officers of companies being let go uh, because the higher you go up and when that company merges and changes. So it's almost like for young people today, if they're looking to create something, they have more control of their life by starting a business or by being self-employed because they decide when they don't work. 
you know, if someone opens a food truck, they decide when their business operates or doesn't. And there's a lot of things that we're seeing with regard to creativity where you have to look where other people aren't looking. So that for me was like, you look where, where it doesn't look fashionable. There's some businesses, sometimes people want to have a nightclub or they want to have a good flashy restaurant, but sometimes those aren't the best ways to make money. Sometimes the ways to make money are the simplest things. So I'll give you an example, Janine. This is one that I brought up several times uh, to employees and colleagues. Like, we've worked a lot of fairs and festivals and a lot of event spaces in our, so we had a contract with Verizon Fios one time to do all their West Coast sales, right? So we had a Verizon store that sold wireless products. We had a Verizon wireless store in the Temecula Promenade Mall, but we also had a contract to do Verizon Fios. So we would go out and work, um, you know, like LA County Fair and Orange County Fair and market nights and, you know, uh, uh, farmers markets and things like that. And it was, it was interesting seeing the type of businesses that are there. So you see a little pop-up stand in a small community market and they're selling like fried donuts or something, right? And it doesn't look fashionable. It doesn't look, but you know, when you get to know those guys, sometimes you figure out they're making like $800 a night, $1,000 a night, and they mm -hmm. control their own destiny. So I started to notice that the food vendors at some of these places were making like a couple thousand dollars a week, you know, take home. Uh, net profit and, and, and they control when they work and they're only showing up for a couple hours a day, uh, you know, several days a week at a farmer's market. So the, these are the things. But if you told that to somebody, I had a friend one time, close friend of mine that was going to school for psychology. And, you know, he, a lot of people were roped into the idea that they get the bachelor's degree and then they couldn't find work. And then the university system told him we have to go back for a master's now because everybody has the bachelor's. You have to get the master's and you'll make more money. And he was going to, he was getting ready to pursue the master's degree. And he asked me one time, because the business for me at that time was very successful. And he said, he said, Justin, you know, what do you think I should do? Should I do this thing? He was doing this side hustle with a friend of his selling like uh, uh, assembly art at a, at a farmer's market. And he said, should I do this or should I do the master's degree? And I said, well, is your goal with the master's degree to do something that you're just, you believe in it, you're passionate, or is it just to make more money? And he said, no, it's just because I'm being told I'll make more money if I get the master's degree. And I said, then look, the answer is you're going to make way more money selling the assembly art and just putting all your effort into that at the farmer's market than you would at the master's degree. And he went on and got the degree instead. And it's, you know, it's not that sometimes it's not that lucrative, but you can, people can make tremendous amount of money off things that people don't, other people don't look at. Sometimes it's not, it's, uh, you know, people are talking about the marijuana business now it's legal in California. Um, People are, are saying things like, you know, the, the money is off them growing the marijuana. No, the money, the most money that was made was off the plastic pieces that hold them, the plastic casing that holds them. So sometimes it's just outside the box thinking that no one else is going to. I, I don't know um, if you've seen my 16 diamond tools of highly creative thinkers, but I lay out the cognitive processes that happen in the brain of people who have been known to be highly creative. And that's really what, that's my... Second one, the first one is just believing that you're creative because once if you believe that you're not creative, then that just shut everything down. But the sure. second one is sensory observation, how we're just dulled, our senses are dulled, we don't see, we're not paying attention. That gift to see what no one else sees, that is something that you can practice and perspective. So that's really what you're talking about, having a different perspective and saying that, hmm, I wonder if, right, that curiosity. Yeah, it's just if everybody's going one direction, it's, it's looking at the other direction. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing where people, entire industries have gone under uh, with COVID. You know? So it's, it's how, how quick are people going to be able to adapt uh, and take action? A lot of people have had business ideas 
their whole life, but they haven't been able to put them into motion. But some of the most successful people I've ever seen, it's when they lose their job. It's when they lose their, their lifetime career that they have to pursue that little side business that they always wanted to do. And sometimes it blows up and they end up becoming extremely successful and free. Because the goal, this quote unquote American dream is not, let's say, to be super rich, but it's to be free, it's to be financially independent. And that's what we all want, right? We all want to be able to control when we work, if we work, you know, how we work and not have to show up, you know, nine to five every single day and beg for two weeks off a year. Well, see, that's the thing that I've been trying to uh, communicate, you know, not just to, to my youth, but now to the people that I'm, I'm trying to serve is be aware of the ownership mentality and your resources. Number one, looking at time, exactly what you were saying is like, do you own your, your time? And for most of us, we don't, we have to trade our time for money and someone else controls what we're producing during that, that time. And there's nothing necessarily wrong, but I tell my kids that if you're going to go for a job, make sure it's something that, you know, you enjoy, but also try to have something small on the side that belongs to you that no one can, can take from you. Cause as you saw this year, Tons of jobs were taken away with, you know, in a blink of an eye and, and people don't have the skills that you had at 18, 19 years old of, okay, well, where do my, um, where do my skills match up with the need in the market? And then how do I take my diamonds, take, you know, your speaking gift and your selling mm -hmm. gift and be of service? You know, what, what does that look like of us actually implementing that into the curriculum? Absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of gig economies that we're seeing pop up, right? And, and that's, that's why we're seeing uh, for people on unemployment now all over the country, uh, they're, they're having to figure out, well, there's millions of people that are part of the gig economy. But, but these are things that, for example, someone could have started the app. There's a great app out there that I'd love to plug for people that are just looking for, for things to do right now for, for side hustle, for money to get by. It's called Tackle, right? T-A-K-L. It's an app on the iTunes store. I don't have any connection to this app, but I was really impressed with it because uh, what it is, is it's basically like a gig app where someone can go on there. And if you need like a, a computer desk put together or, or something assembled or like any, any, any type of construction work or any type of home uh, repairs or any type of handyman service, they go on the app and then someone pays the app and then someone on that app just chooses which gig they take. And so there was, I had a guy come by and put together like a, uh, a, uh, a bookshelf for me one time, you know, and, but I realized I talked to him and he's like making like four or $500 a day, just putting together like little, you know, you know, when you buy something from a store, you buy a desk, you buy, he's I just love it together. And he's like, and he's a computer programmer on the side, a real smart guy. So this is, there's a lot of people doing things like that, that we're not paying attention to because, you know, we're, everybody's looking for that job. But what's crazy about the job market right now is, and what's crazy about the university system or the, the college industrial complex is that they keep telling everybody for now decades that, you know, a six-figure income is, is the American dream. A six-figure income is the way to get by. But we're learning in big cities now like Los Angeles that $100,000 a year doesn't have the purchasing power that it did in the 1960s, 1980s. You can't even, nope. I mean, you can barely rent a studio apartment for $100,000 a year. So it's, it's really to that level. And so when people take, like, if they get an inflation calculator, and they look, and this is the reason why I'm saying this is because they have to, we all have to get to a point where we're going to create our own vocation just to have the money to get by. Because $100,000 a year in 1965, let's say, right, today, $100,000 today, um, 
okay, $100,000 in 1965 is when everybody said that was a six-figure income, right? That was when, you know, someone could make 100 grand and then the, their spouse could stay at home. They could have kids go to like a, a private school mm-hmm. if they wanted to. They could, have a, they could own a house. They could have two car payments. They could go on vacation, et cetera. Well, what would that be today? It's shocking, but the numbers are 100 grand in 1965 today would be $823,000 a year. So we would have to make, this is, if you look at an inflation calculator, we would have to make $823,000 a year to have the equivalent of a hundred grand in 1965. And then in 1980, the same hundred grand uh, would be 315,000 today. So it's like, and now you're seeing the stats come out. You're seeing the reports that like, what does it cost to live in Los Angeles? What does it cost to live in New York? What does it cost to live in San Francisco? And in LA, they say it's like 196,000. So it's basically like 200,000 a year someone would have to make to rent like a one bedroom apartment in Venice beach or, or in, in, in a nice area of Los Angeles. This it's, is, that's scary. This is so true. And, and that's why I just think it's just urgent to really start equipping um, our people earlier on in life on how to create value, you know, and that's really why I had that tagline, your creative health affects your financial wealth. Because if you have that ability to create value and to know how that, connected to the entrepreneurship tools it, it puts you in a better position than someone who um just followed the rules got and by the way my degree was in psychology so i totally know what nice. you're saying i yeah. couldn't i i did a speech at ucla and i was like raise your hand if you're a psychology degree and a few folks did i was like that is the most useless useful degree ever and i was like it's useless because it's hard to find a job with just a ba in psych but it's so useful because if you understand what makes people move sure. what makes people in a group you know shift you know because sales is all psychology like 85 percent, right absolutely um, <laughs> so yeah but we're not taught to use psychology in that way we're just taught to well, no memorize one's taught, whatever you know no and one's do taught on to the test and the, no one's being taught to monetize their gifts that's what it their is. skills. Yes. And they're taught to look for a job to go into the corporate system. And that corporate system just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it's scary when, when we post job ads for, uh, like for my, one of my for-profit companies, we'll, we'll, I'm shocked at what's out there. I'm, I'm, we're seeing stuff where they're requiring people to have master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, 10 years experience, this and this and that. And then they offer like $43,000 a year. And, and this is in a market like Los Angeles. Like the, the office will be in Brentwood and they're, and they're trying to pay people 40 or 50,000, which to me is like almost slave. It, it's, it's shocking because you're almost guaranteeing that after taxes and everything, you're putting someone into poverty. So you have all this, this, this uh, hot air out there about people creating jobs, but what is creating, if it's not a living wage, if it's not something that someone can live off, are you really, are we really creating jobs? I mean, it, it, like people ask me all the time, they talk about the economy and they'll say, well, look at, you know, the unemployment numbers, the lowest it's ever been and this and this and that. And these are people that I'll disagree with politically. And, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll explain to them, I'll say, well, look, the unemployment rate doesn't matter if the, if the wages don't, aren't, aren't a living wage, if you can't live off it. And then I throw an example at them. I'll say like, okay, if I, let's say I hired a hundred people for a dollar an hour to do some, some work, a dollar an hour. Did I just give a hundred people work? Did I just create a hundred jobs? No, I just put a hundred people into poverty. 
-hmm. And that's what we're looking yeah. at now. We're trying to pay people $10 an hour or $40,000 a year in cities like LA. It's just not, it's not enough. No. And me becoming from the educational world, you know, I know about that. And where a lot of teachers have to moonlight. They had to have yeah. two or three jobs on the side. So I certainly know, know about that. But this is certainly uh, more fuel for my fire because I'm really trying to get people to really work on their creative thinking and really challenge themselves. Because the thing is, you now can't put all the responsibility on someone else. Now it's like on you to sit down and really think about where you're gifted and get those tools to grow. So that's um, some great points that you brought up. What do you think, because you you have been hiring folks and I'm pre pre pretty sure you do some hiring for your nonprofit as well. Mm -hmm. I've been saying that a lot of times corporations, you know, really look at the pedigree, like, okay, you're from Harvard and you're from this, and we just let that do our decisions for us as opposed to really looking at do you think like how creative are you how do you really present or use perspective and problem solve like what do you see a shifting in that direction as they continue to bring on the talent well, into the workforce that's a great question Jeannie. i think uh we're seeing it shift the opposite way now so over the last like 20 years uh, when we were doing a lot of hiring we would have college kids come in and, 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 and I would feel bad. They would tell me about how they have master's degree and this is that, and they deserve to be paid higher than everybody else. And remember, we were hiring for commission sales. I mean, even if we're hiring for like a cell phone store for someone to, you know, sit in a mall kiosk or to work in a store, we're, it's still basically a performance-based package. So we're, we were always trying to emulate a meritocracy. We were always trying to create a merit-based system where um, in, in our system, sales uh, is the great meritocracy. It's of, of the one occupations, it's the one where you can't really fake it, right? If you're going in on a commission-based sales, uh, and it's and it's a it's a it's a decent package of performance uh, incentives, you you could be, you know, two people with the exact same commission rate. Uh, one person can make five times what the other person makes. It's just based purely off their skill set, right? One mm -hmm. person can make more than the manager. They could make more. I've seen sales reps. Uh, I've seen sales reps in mall kiosks make more than the, uh, you know, some of the executives at the company. Uh, it's just, it's just about, it's about the skill set. It's, a, it depends on what sales it is, obviously. But that's the thing. So if you have a kid that comes from a really privileged background, or, or he has all kinds of issues with different people, he's racist, and you throw him in a sales environment, and he doesn't have the skill set, he's going to drown, and he's going to get humbled. And that's what a lot of people, especially people from money, when their kids, their kids have money, if they grow up in that privileged background, they need to put them into sales so they can get embarrassed and get humbled and learn how to swim on their own. Because otherwise, they just go through this, you know, they went to Princeton and Harvard, and then they end up, you know, that's the old world. But what we're seeing now is companies like Google, companies like Facebook, companies like uh, Tesla, where they just flat out don't care. You could go Google how much a lot of these big tech companies no longer care if someone has a degree. They're looking at what you can do, what, how, how you can learn, how quick you are to adapt to change. And that's what sales teaches us. And that's what entrepreneurship teaches us. But a lot of times we would have people come in and, and try to, and, and they would want to get paid higher than everybody there. And I'd have to point to another guy, like, look, this guy's been here 11 years. This guy's been here nine years. And he's been, he's been grinding out. Of course, he's going to get a higher commission rate, but you can start at the same rate, but you're not, you can work your way up. But they thought because that piece of paper was there that they deserve higher, but then they couldn't hack it when it came down to it sometimes. Yes, so. and a lot of times, you know, it's the paper shows what you learned 
five years ago. And I was telling folks, like, by the time you get out of school, it, it, the technology is changing so fast that it's obsolete. Yeah. You know, which it, it's so sad because, you know, I really, I, I feel for our kids because they're, they're tap dancing on a moving floor, you know, and, and, and we don't know what, what it's going to look like, especially now. We really don't know what it's going to look like next year and the year Absolutely. after. And so that's why I'm just trying to put it out there of you got to get these skills to be able to adapt, you know, and that's really what creative thinking is, is that perspective at adaptation and basically how to just tango. You got to know how, how to dance and how to flip when you got to flip and just go with the rhythm, but know that the tempo might change. So you got to follow Yeah, the it's always been changing. I mean, think about, Janine, think about like when Walmart started popping up or some of these major, major conglomerates, these, you know, hyper-capitalist corporations, they would shut down all small business. So I always used to make my hometown, I grew up in Redlands, California. It's only like a population of 70,000 people. Hey, right I'm there. from Eisenhower. That's I'm right. Rialto, so we, Rialto. We from LA from exactly. <laughs> so, so we see in those communities, like in the Inland Empire area, cities around there, we saw uh, a lot of us during that time when Walmart popped up. And I remember in my hometown, uh, there used to be a television store. There used to be a radio store. There used to be a radio shack. You know, there used to be all these independent businesses where one person, you know, could support themselves and their family and have just, you know, maybe like one to 10 employees and have comfortable living. But then Walmart came in and just destroyed all that. So now Walmart has a department that sells TVs and they have a department that sell radios, et cetera. So those are, and now we're seeing the, a new industry get because now tech is disrupting all the old industries. Now mm -hmm. TurboTax is uh, displacing people that used to be accountants. And now AI software is going to be displacing graphic design artists and all kinds of things like that. So we always mm -hmm. have to be, so that, so you're right, the, the school system, it, and that's why putting people into debt with the college industrial complex is kind of a, another big crime because they're, when they go to, to, to these college recruiters who are on commission, who are basically commissioned sales reps, they're telling them, hey, if you come to this university and you get this degree, you're going to make X amount more over your life than you would without it. And if you get this degree, this higher one, you're going to make X amount more dollars in your career as you, now that might've been applicable 40 years ago or 30 years ago, but now and going forward, none of that matters. So, uh, you know, it's time for people to start thinking of what's not fashionable. Another example of these, you know, LA County Fair, LA County Fair is there and every, every, every county in the U.S. has one big county fair, right? But they, they're there one month a year, right? Well, when you look at like the waterbed cellars or like the uh, spa, you know, the backyard jacuzzis, the, the jacuzzi manufacturers, did you know that like 80% of many, many of those shops that sell jacuzzis, they don't get walk-in traffic. They don't have too many internet sales, but 80% of their sales comes from the county fairs. So they'll fill so many orders in that one month at the LA County Fair that the next... 10, 11 months, they're just filling and doing the, doing the installs from what they got at that one county fair. And here's another example. We were working a lot of those fairs and, uh, and festivals, and we would see, uh, you know, I, here's, this is a funny one I always bring up. It's about funnel cakes, right? So we would see a guy with the funnel cake stand, and we would just watch. You know, we had this little booth up there selling Verizon or doing our cell phone thing or doing many different companies that we've represented. And, uh, and we would just see people lined up all day long, just paying $16 for a funnel cake, $12 Ooh, for a funnel $16. cake. $16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, and, and then I would realize, you know, we would pay for our booth at the LA County Fair like $7,000 to be there. Now, some of these food vendors would pay like 15 grand. So I was like, damn, if they're paying 15 grand to be there for the month, they must be making some pretty good money. We realized that guess how much money in one month 
uh, let's say a good funnel cake seller can make just selling funnel cakes. Now, everybody would laugh at this guy because they've been other restaurant owners would be like, oh, you're just selling funnel cakes at this little time. <laughs> but this guy was making $150,000 a year wow. just off that one month. Now, think about it. If he, were, if he opens up three of those, one at the LA County Fair, one at the San Diego County Fair, one at the Orange County Fair, and he's there three months a year, he could be potentially pulling down $450,000 a year net and traveling the other nine months a year. Meanwhile, the guy with the restaurant has all this overhead, all this, all, he's got to pay for electricity, he's got to pay rent, he's got to operate, he's got to have employees there, it's going to be open all year long, he has to advertise. Folks are still stealing the food through the back door. <laughs> yeah, he's got spoilage costs, you know, and then we're seeing the, the food trucks take over, right? So food, so this is, I'm not into the food business, I'm just giving an example of industries that are out there that other people might snub their nose at and be like, oh, that's low class or that's whatever. But in reality, that's the outside the box stuff because the guy that has the food truck that could be making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe he has two trucks or something, he just doesn't even want anybody to know. And it's the same thing with the funnel cake stand. He doesn't want anybody to know. He wants them to laugh so he can you know, laugh his way to the bank. But yeah, and are, there's not like 10 funnel cakes 10 <laughs> next, next year, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, think of if someone wanted to have like a, a plumbing business. You know, that's not fashionable, but it can be very lucrative. Now, what if someone has a plumbing business and they get a contract with uh, LA Unified School District? And that one contract, they're allowed to, they can do all the plumbing for all the school district, for all of LA County. That contract alone could be worth $2.5 million a year. You see, so it's like, I'm just throwing examples out there of industries that other people would not, you know, it's not like they're owning a nightclub. It's not like they're owning a, a, a vodka brand or something like that. It's just like, yeah, they have a little, you know, I got a, a contract with the schools to do plumbing, you know, and, and, but those are the industries that sometimes are very lucrative that no one's looking for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's going back to just keeping your eyes open, being aware. And another thing you, you brought in and you keep saying that it's, it's not fashionable and how um, some of the, the kids who have, let's say comfy upbringings sp spoke about this on a few other podcasts because it just really rings my heart about the whole college scandal a few years ago where the parents got caught paying their kids way into USC and, and oh yeah some some other things and I was just you know we focus on on the parents and I just you know said that you know to me that's child abuse of course they're not like beating their kids or whatever but that's child abuse because exactly what you just said they're not letting them fall and when you get become an adult the kids who need to know how to be resilient, it's like these the, the people really know not just how to bounce back, but how to regenerate in the new climate. And those are the ones who are successful. I just feel that we need to give. <laughs> I give couldn't agree. Kids. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, and to touch on that, I mean, that's that you're, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. And it really hits close to home. And that's kind of the heart of what we're trying to do with the nonprofit, which I'll get into in a little bit. But just to touch base on, on what you brought up. Um, a system of inherited wealth, a generation after generation after generation is not only an injustice to all of society, but it also is an injustice to the children themselves. Because like you said, uh, they're, I, I call it declawed, right? They're almost like a cat that's been declawed and they don't know how to navigate the world. And if they lose that wealth, which they do many times, um, once their parents die and they inherit it, they don't know what to do. Or sometimes they get into, you know, you talk to a lot of uh, the, Jamie uh, Johnson from the Johnson and Johnson family has a great documentary out there called Born Rich, where he shows how a lot of these uh, inherited wealth kids, they end up, they don't know what to do. All, they, they, they're handicapped by thinking they have to live up to their parents' legacy. 
and they have no way to do that. So they end up getting into drugs and, 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 and then they end up going to rehab. And it's just, when you look at the rehab facilities, it's always these rich kids. It's always these inherited wealth, privileged backgrounds. And it's really sad, but it also disrupts all of society and it allows us uh, to not to have a meritocracy that we could. So for example, you know, the system that we have now is uh, unequal starting points and unequal outcome. We don't have an, an equality of opportunity. And that's what we're trying to push with Hustle for Humanity from the economic rights of, of the human rights, uh, the Declaration of Human Rights, which fall into civil, political, economic, social, and cultural rights. In the economic rights part, we, we do believe that as humans, we should have uh, in any country uh, the right for the equality of opportunity, but we don't have that now, right? Because as we explained, $100,000 a year, which could, you know, $150,000 a year could be a really high paying job now. We really could barely afford a nice apartment in LA on something like that. But some of these kids inherit so much wealth. They are interviewing the, the super rich nowadays, and they're asking them, like, how much money would you need to survive on for like the Mar-a-Lago style uh, country clubs? And they said to maintain their lifestyle, they would need 195 million, right? So that they call it a hundy. 100 million is their starting point for some of these super rich uh, class war types. A year or just to, to have? Their net worth. Their net worth, they would say for a net couple, worth. they would need about 200 million. Okay. Now they, they jokingly call it a hundy, 100 million to get into the club. That's like to get into like the Mar-a-Lago types. Now let's look at what a hundy is. The bare base starting line to get into that super rich class. Okay. Like, like say for example, Trump inherited 413 million, right? So when they have, what happens is they get a wealth manager and we have, I have a lot of friends that are in wealth management in LA and it's an industry I'd never seen in the Inland Empire, but in LA it's huge. So wealth, <laughs> manage, wealth management is something where, uh, you know, someone has their portfolio covered by an asset manager that diversifies it into stocks and bonds and real estate and et cetera, et cetera. And they look at what their entire portfolio gets. Now they might get 1% the, the portfolio manager might get 1%. But let me just give you an example. So if someone inherits 400 million, like, like the president, um, if they get a, a modest 6% return, uh, they're making $24 million a year just off their wealth alone. So now when we look at, do we have an equality of opportunity? So no matter how brilliant an idea you or I or anybody else may have, it could be a completely ingenious new idea. Are we gonna be able to monetize that into $24 million a year net profit? It's very unlikely, you know what I mean? I mean, even mm -hmm. 2 million a year is extremely excessive, mm -hmm. right? That's already, ex 2 million a year is already enough money to do almost anything you want if you're not excessively greedy. So it's like uh, 24 million a year. Now, let's say someone gets a hundy. They start with 100 million. That's their inheritance. If they get a 6% return, they're making 6 million a year off doing nothing. Now, if they get a 3% return, now real estate in the United States went up, it went up 3% a year for 80 years straight until the crash. Okay. So just off 3% alone, that's 3 million a year. If they just had it all in, in diversified real estate mm -hmm. and then they have rental properties. So it's, it's not hard when they inherit it, but that's what we're at. That's, these are the people that are running society. Now, these are the people that are running the banks and the institutions and countries. And they're, they're most of the time inherited wealth, but they tell us we just have to work hard. But then when you look at the people that actually are working hard, that have three or four jobs and are trying to raise a family and do all these things and, and grind from six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, they, they can barely make ends meet. So it's not hard work sometimes because we don't have an equality of opportunity. So if we had an equal starting point, we would see a lot of these inner, inner city kids and the kids with an extreme will, uh, extreme, uh, you know, anybody who can come up from poverty and even survive without being completely screwed up has a tenacious will that could outperform any of these uh, trust fund elements.
and 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's so much no i i can see you're very passionate about this yes Thanks. um you know right now my business is focusing on the work the workforce and getting creativity back into the workforce but my whole 15 years career was working with children because i'm like if, if you get to the mindset of the kids and give them some strategies because you said it I, i'm a hard worker but i was a 30 year old in huge debt with no yeah concept of financial literacy at all. I didn't even know how APR credit cards work at 30. And, yeah. and I remember signing up for my first credit card on the campus of UCLA. And so I have a huge issue with colleges um, throwing yep. cards yep. At, at kids. But um, yeah, I was just signing up cards because they would give free t-shirts and everything yep. and not, not a clue what I was doing. So had someone sat me down at 16 year old and said, Janine, you're working at Kmart, your first job, put 10% of your income away. Here's a few things to do so I can learn that because it's a mentality. It's a, it's a behavior, you know, and it becomes a part of your identity. So what I tell folks is you are being trained to be a consumer because yep. if you really look at it, there's a small group of people making a lot of money off of the millions of students we're graduating who are financially illiterate. And absolutely. I wonder, I wonder if that's on purpose. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and what's interesting about that is we almost, so with my for-profit company, Commission Enterprises, many years back, we almost had a contract to do that with the credit card companies. We didn't, we didn't know if it was ethically sound. We didn't kind of pursue it. It was kind of outside our wheelhouse, uh, but we, we all we wanted to get into that industry for a little while there because what the, but we we thought it was predatory in, in a sense that it was it was giving gifts to students to get them into debt and with 28% APR credit cards but they were paying a commission so imagine these credit card companies were paying for contract sales companies like mine so what our company did was basically like um, you bid on a contract to do the outside sales for a company so Verizon or somebody doesn't want to do uh, you know, they have a Fios product and they want to roll it out and they want door-to-door -door teams and they want kiosk teams and they want, you know, they want uh, MDU contract people going to multi-dwelling units, apartment complex, but they don't want to do it themselves. They just outsource and, look, and the people look like they're Verizon. Um, that's what the credit card companies were doing. And they were paying just on the application. They were paying a commission on the application. And if the application got approved, they were paying a higher commission. But then what happened is the industry died out because they started paying the colleges directly. So the millions of dollars a year that they were paying the for-profit sales companies to go have a kiosk on the campus, they started paying the campuses directly and they just absorbed all that profit. So it is predatory hypercapitalism. I mean, I'm, you know, we're, I've always called myself more of like a social capitalist. It's almost kind of like a hybrid between socialism and capitalism. You take the best ideas of socialism and the best ideas of capitalism, you kind of fuse them together, right? So it's, it's, it's conscious capitalism because capitalism, I mean, we, uh, to the to the degree where we all want to go out and start our business, that's great, but not to the point where it's destroying the community that we live in, or it's de decimating entire people's uh, you know retirements and things like that. Those are the the um, Gordon geckos of the world that don't care. It's that hyper greed, hyper capitalism, and it's that uh, it, it's rooted in selfishness and in ignorance and in greed. And this age of greed that we're in right now has brought us to the place where we're at as a society. We brought it to the place where like. Half the country could potentially be out of work. Um, you know, unemployment rates just skyrocketing, and no one, no one knows what to do. So, with Hustle for Humanity, we're all about kind of changing that, and we're looking at tangible ways that could actually be effective to change that. And one of them, on the economic side, we truly believe is a 100% inheritance tax. So, we believe that at a certain point, now maybe that has to be at 100 million. 
Maybe it has to be at 10 million, whatever. But there's a lot of people out there that are advocating this. And some, and many of them, believe it or not, are the actual self-made super rich. So the guys like Bill Gates that actually made it on their own, the guy, you know, some of the people that have actually made that type of money and realize how excessive it is and feel guilty for having it, they're advocating that. So Bill Gates, believe it or not, he's not giving his kids any more than $10 million of everything he's worth. 10 million. He's just be, 10 million. Compared to what he has, I understand. Compared to what he has, it's like he's still giving away like 99.9%, right? So, and he said, a quote unquote, it wouldn't be good for them or for the world to inherit any more than that. So if we have guys like Bill Gates and guys like Buffett and all them giving away all their money and barely giving their kids anything, some of these guys, like you seen the show Shark Tank, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Evan O'Leary that's on Shark Tank, he's not giving his kids anything, nothing. He's worth, supposedly, he's, he's a billionaire, but he doesn't want anybody to know. He says he's worth like 300 million, but. Tomorrow uh, <laughs> from a billion. Yeah, yeah, he's not giving his kids anything. He says he's paying for their education and that's it. And so we're seeing a lot of, a lot of them. Uh, Mark Cuban, he's really worried about his kids having, becoming inherited privileged brats. Uh, Barbara Corker and all that, they're, they're really big on this. So all the ones that have made their own, they're getting to the point where like, yeah, we have to create a society where we have a, an equal starting point and an unequal outcome, right? We can have an equal starting point. Think of it like a race, like a hundred meter race, right? Or, so if everybody starts at the same starting line, the, the skill set, who's the fastest would actually end the race. But right now we have a system where like 49% of the population is starting you know, 20 yards back from the starting line, yeah. 1% of the population With, is Within the uh, ditch, right? Don't yeah, yeah, the right, ditch yeah. back there and, and the gate above you. Obstacles, right? And then, and then you have <laughs> the a certain- chase. Yeah. And then you have a certain, you know, you've got 50% that's starting at zero. And then you have 1% that's starting at the, like, let's say like if it was 100 yards, they're at the 99 yard line. They just have to step over one yard and win and everybody cheers for them. And yeah, that's yeah. the society that's that we true. have. So we need, we need that to change. And that- that ties into all of this. So we need the new entrepreneurs to come up and realize that, you know, we don't, it's, it's not just about all, you know, getting rich. It's about becoming financially independent, helping all of us become financially independent. Because if everybody in our society is doing better, then we all live better. If we all, if it's mm-hmm. all about the common will, the common, the general will, if we can all come up together, then it's better. So it's good to share ideas. It's good to, you know, it's good to, to want everybody else to do well. Everybody's taught this idea that you have to step on other people and screw everybody over to get over to the top. And that's not the case. That may be the case in some corrupt, predatory corporate environment. But in, our, in the real entrepreneurial system, it's all about sharing these ideas. I'm not going to open a funnel cake stand. Why not tell that to someone who already has a food cart? Why not, why not share these ideas? And we can all learn from each other. And that's really what this, you know, this podcast is about is re- re shifting people's view of their their gifts and their ability to you know co- connect because I, I think that's another um thing that i want to work on within the school system how we're almost subconsciously being uh geared to just compete 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 you know when you rate our test scores it's always compared against someone else you know the bell curve it's just like competing and then we're supposed to collaborate afterwards but we really haven't been taught how to effectively collaborate and work together and build together like what does that look look like you know absolutely and it all and like you said it all comes down to education so what we're hoping with health for humanity is to eventually kind of help roll out this new custom education system and and do some work with the united nations eventually because it does look like we're heading that direction to, to kind of a global society where things are going to be more integrated and, and and here's another thing that people haven't touched upon now that everybody's working remotely um, if let's say, for example, someone's in Los Angeles and they're, they're living in Los Angeles and they're working for a tech firm or whatever, 
now they're working remotely, which means their job is now up to the global market, right? Because anybody yeah, can do yeah. their job remotely now. So it's now they have to create it. They're all because people we're gonna see a whole new segment come in. Intercultural competency and how we need to be better trained on how to work with people from different cultures. What does that look like? You know, how to have empathy and to collaborate with people who are now around the world. So I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah. it's something that we all have to be mindful of. If, yeah, we're not just dealing with Americans. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, and, it's, and it's, it's almost um, when you look at the top, at the super rich at the top, they're all united. They all get along, but then at the bottom, everybody else who's not in that class of society, which is all the rest of us, right, who aren't, aren't super rich, they've tried to create an atomized society, and they've tried to divide everybody by race, religion, politics, sports teams, everything. And as long as everybody's at each other's throats, we can't even communicate, we can't get along, whereas at the top, they're just laughing their way to the bank. So during the pandemic, we saw the rich, the super rich billionaire classes make more gains than they ever have in their entire careers. Some of them doubled their net worth. Bezos is yeah, like yeah. billion now. So it's like, it's gotten to that point, but as long as we can unite everybody, and this is again, what we're trying to do with Hustle for Humanity is like figure out how we can get everybody uh, together. And one of those things would be like a universal language. Why, why don't we have a universal language yet? Why don't we have like a, you know, imagine if we had a world where like everybody learns their, 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 their hometown, their home country language, but then they learn their world language right? So they learn everybody's bilingual. They have one language they can speak to the whole world. But right now we're all divided by so many different factors and language is one of them. Uh, the American founders, when you look it up, when you look at what Thomas Jefferson wrote and Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin, all them, they actually wanted like a maximum wage and they wanted like a, a reset every, every generation. So every generation they wanted a reset. So that way the person with the most talent, the person with the most skill could be the one, let's say running the uh, the bank or running the country. But right now, all these presidents, all these prime ministers, they're always from, you know, dynastic families of wealth and privilege, whether it's the economic elite or the political elite, they're always, it's never the intellectual elite. And that's what we need to change. Mm, it's almost kind of like a poor dad, rich dad, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes back to the issue of why financial education isn't taught in schools and, and how I think that was purposely orchestrated because they keep touting, you know, education is the key. And that's why, why I'm so big on defining terms before you use them. Well, what is it? What does it mean to be fully functional and educated as an adult? And if I can't take care of my family because I don't know how finances work and how money works within the system, am I fully educated? Absolutely. I mean, how come we don't have classes on teaching people how to buy property to how to, how to, how to, how to, you know, how to pay off their debt. That's another thing, the debt buying industry it's just extremely predatory. And that's something, again, what we do with Hustle for Humanity is we actually buy people's medical debt for pennies on the dollar and forgive it because that's we awesome. believe that healthcare is a human right. So that's called the Robin Hood bailout. But we, we, I talk to friends about it all the time and they're perplexed. They're like, what do you mean buy debt? Well, it's like I read a book by a guy named Bill Bartman. Uh, I think it was maybe like 15 years ago. And this guy became a billionaire buying up people's debt. And people don't realize that like there's an entire predatory industry out there of debt collection by buying personal of consumer debt, right? Like people buy the debt. Like when someone doesn't pay on their mm -hmm. credit card, that bank after 90 days or so just sells it to a debt buyer. And then that company, like after 60, after six months or so, they sell it to another debt buyer. And so someone buys that debt. Let's say someone has a $50,000 credit card. They might've bought that debt for like three to 5,000. And then they call and try and collect the full 50. And so it's a huge industry and people don't realize that they can, they can kind of pay off their own debt, that they can negotiate with their own bank. Like right now, when everybody's, all these things are happening, they can call up their own credit card company, their own bank, and they can negotiate to try and 
pay down their debt for a percentage of what's owed. Yeah, that is so, so good. And yeah, I have my uh, book as well called From Debt to Destiny, Creating Financial Freedom from the Inside Out, where I talk about how we got out of $100,000 worth of debt once I actually figured out what was going on. Oh, that's great. So and, you did it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but that's I also have a chapter about um, the creative thinking part of how I had to utilize my creative thinking skills in order to be um, thinking outside the box and really look at how my diamond gifts could help with this goal. Absolutely. I love that. I love those phrases that you put in there. Those oh, are great. Yeah. So you did talk about, about Hustle for Humanity. Where did that name come from? Well, you know, uh, we were out there doing direct sales the whole time. So I kind of, it kind of, it kind of just was a, uh, a thought process of, well, if you're going to hustle for something, you know, hustle for humanity, hustle for like, it's, it's two, two different meanings of hustle, right? Hustle in the sense that like, go out there and grind and like make it happen. And the other sense that like, hurry up, you know, we need to hurry up. Like there's a sense of urgency, you know, hurry up hustle. So, so the hustle for humanity idea was just that, Hey, you know, like we're, we're losing as a society. If we don't do something, if we don't step in and do something, we're going to end up with a two tier society. Oxfam international put out uh, an article a couple of years back where they showed that like the top 1% owns 99% of the wealth of the world. Right. So it's like, if we don't, do something what's right now there's no system in place to stop people from owning everything right like people don't want to have regulation they want to have a complete free market but then if you had a completely free market then what's to stop three families from owning the whole world right what's to stop one, <laughs> yeah. one rich family from owning all the land in california what do they just evict everybody or owning all the land on the earth so it's like yeah we it's time to hustle it's time to hurry up for all of us and so when you when you take all nonprofits, all charities everything what are they all really boiling down to everything boils down to human rights. Everything boils down to what we have as rights as human beings that should be from birth, no matter what. And some of those things like with Hustle for Humanity, we try and simplify it. Like what do people need? They need food, water, shelter, education, healthcare. All of those are not up for debate. They are just what people deserve. Every single human being with the heartbeat deserves food, water, shelter, education, and healthcare. And that's the society we want to create by 2030. And, uh, and we're, we're seeing how, you know, we've been saying that for, for 10 years, but now people are starting to realize that like, yeah, I mean, in a pandemic, of course, healthcare is a human right. You know, mm -hmm. in, in, a, mm -hmm. in a situation where everybody loses their job or everybody can't go to work, of course, housing is a human right. That's why there's rent strikes all over the country right now. That's why people can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgages, because housing should have been a human right to begin with. Um, food, water, you know what I mean? Like the, the Pepsi tried to privatize water. I mean, how crazy is that? <laughs> so that's what we're trying to do. And so we're trying to get to a point where, you know, we have all these chapters all over the world and everybody works in tandem, but really we want to create a world where charities no longer exist in the first place. Mm. So we're almost, we're almost irritated that we even have to exist. Right. Yeah. We don't want to become a big multinational charity and do billions of dollars a year and ever have everybody on huge salaries. We want to create a world where we no longer even have to exist because charity in itself uh, is a failure of the Commonwealth to address a certain issue. Right. If, if there's a charity out there saying, OK, there's you know, thousands of children a day buying, dying from poverty. This is that we as a society should have already stepped in to stop that. We shouldn't have to have ABC Charity Inc. Uh, begging for donations to stop that injustice. I see several charities where I hear folks say, well, it's so sad that this charity is even needed. Why isn't the school system stepping up or why isn't that step stepping up? So I do hear, hear that a lot. Yeah. And so we're there. trying to, thank you. And so we're, what we're trying to do is just kind of publicize and, and get into people's minds, the universal declaration of human rights that was penned in 1948 by the United Nations. So people don't realize that sometimes when 
you know, intelligent human beings put something on paper like they did with the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, the French Declaration of Rights and Man and Citizen. Those are the things that change society drastically. But people don't realize that even in France, um, in the 18th century France, when they penned the French Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, that didn't become the law until after World War II, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like we saw like even in World War uh, to in, in the world, they didn't have, you know, after the first world war, there was the League of Nations. After the second world war, there was the United Nations. Now, God forbid there's a third world war, but there, very might, there may well be one. If there is, hopefully we can make the Universal Declaration of Rights the law. We can just all, it's, it's, see, it's all about all of humanity coming up. It's, you can't just have like one country being better than another. We have mm -hmm. Africa, we failed as a whole. Africa was the cradle of civilization. And it, and it should be, I mean, Africa, will be the new beacon i think that rises from all this so mm. we'll see we'll see a lot in the new world but but that's what it's about it's about making those things the law making human rights the law and and that's what let's say for example that's what separated america from many other countries is that you had this bill of rights you had this constitution so people were able to pursue whatever they wanted to without being attacked by a monarchy or a or a clergy, et cetera. They were able to be free to pursue their own dreams and create their own businesses. Well, we, yeah. yeah, we need- Some groups were. <laughs> Some groups. My ancestors, not, not so much. <laughs> oh, I know, that was, a, it was, a, yeah. and, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of history of that that people don't know. Like for example, um, you know, this is something that I was gonna do a, a podcast on or a book about, but, but when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, uh, there was a lot more paragraphs in there than what was edited out of it. And he wanted to end all, believe it or not, he actually, I didn't believe this for a long time, but until I saw the evidence, um, they, he had penned in the ending of all slavery and all monarchy, right? And the other 53 signers were so worried about the racist white Southerners that relied on slavery as their economic means that they thought that it wouldn't support the revolution. So he had to sit there angrily and watch them edit the, the, the declaration that he wrote, guess how many times they did it? 86 times. He had to sit there and watch them edit. So a lot of, so sometimes it's like, sometimes there's a handful of smart people that are about human rights. And then it's just the majority of the masses that don't want it to happen. And, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing that I've been fighting figurative and literally, literally I've been fighting racism my entire life. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the Inland Empire. I, I hated a lot of the elements that were there. There was a lot of like I felt like I was in Kentucky or Tennessee in some parts. My family was from the East Coast. I could have easily been born in Boston or New York, but I was raised on the West Coast. I was the only one. But there's a very big difference from a big metropolitan area like Los Angeles and a small town like Redlands or Yukaipa. So some of those areas are extremely old world, extremely racist. And, and it's sickening to me because I was born without that. I was born without that element. My family were, you know, they were like hippies and they were from the East Coast and they were immigrants. They experienced racism even in the East Coast as Italians. There was like, it, people are always divided, right? So people like even the Irish cops were racist against the Italians. But, but, with, but with African-Americans in America, with people of color, the racism is so extreme that people for just for decades that we've been trying to point to, and that's exactly what we're doing with Hustle for Humanity is we're an anti-racist charity. So we're so pleased with all the uprisings that are happening because all the injustice that's been happening since this country's inception is finally being filmed. Mm -hmm. It's always mm -hmm. been there, but it's yeah. finally caught on camera and it's mm -hmm. finally right in the face of the average person. Yeah, and that, that was a turning point for uh, the march on the, the bridge. You know, they had that, those cameras there with, with Dr. King 
and you have people who were just living their lives that were watching this. They're like, what, what's going on? And so that was a strategic move to have the cameras there in, in that time. And so now that everyone has their own camera, their own media center, yeah, it's finally being shown. And so, so many, I, I said that so many people's bubbles are being popped. It's almost like a, there's a, well, this element that's always been there, this, it's almost like the first civil war never ended. It's just continued and now it's been exposed. But it's almost like someone's pulled back this old rug, and we're seeing all the cockroaches run for cover because the light's finally being shown on it. Mm-hmm, and that's, mm-hmm. what, that's the only way that we can change it, is to finally expose what's been happening. I've always, I've always referred to myself as kind of like a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist, but it's very, I think it's at this point it's very obvious to see um, that the future will be good. I mean, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, it'll be amazing. 50 years ago, the, the, we, the people are either like, let's say politically or even in, in tech and in business, they're either progressive or regressive. Forget left and right and all that. It's either progress or mm-hmm. regressive, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going forward, we're going to the forward to the future where we're past racism and sexism and xenophobia and bigotry and nationalism and all these dividing factors. And it's obvious that the, that the, old, the old mindset is trying to hold on to what strands they have left of that, of that bigotry and that's going to be ripped from them. Yeah, yeah, and this is the time for us to really interrogate our own complicity, as my uh, good, good, good friend says. We have to really see, are we a part of the problem, are part of the solution, and be progressive. So I'm so, so glad you are doing your amazing work with Hustle for Humanity. If people wanted to find more out about your work and your organization, where can they go? Thanks, Jane. They can just go to hustleforhumanity.org or they can just Google Hustle for Humanity. And uh, we don't, we're not asking for donations or anything, but we'd prefer rather than a donation is if someone wants to get out there and kind of share the meme, share the message, uh, start a chapter in their own city, join a chapter and just, it's, it's, a, it's a straight advocacy movement, grassroots. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And certainly see me as a resource, you know, my backgrounds in education and uh, curriculum development and integration and creative thinking. So Absolutely. if you need any, any uh, support in that area, please see me as a resource. I'm just so excited to see your big BHAG goals. And you are a man of just big, hairy, audacious goals. And I love that. I love that. Thanks so much, Janine. I appreciate the compliment. If you can just leave us with one last gem that we can be inspired by before we say goodbye, what would that be? Realize that everybody means well. They're all just, uh, everybody's hypnotized in their own schema. We're all one species. We're all one human race. And we're all going to get through this. Uh, I think there's going to be some dark times ahead, but but I think the light is, is coming directly after that. And if we all learn to care about each other, and we all learn to uh, embrace and, 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 and have one forward goal, we can, we can get through it. All right. Love it. Thank you. I say my one final gem because I'm the diamond girl. So oh, thank, you. thank you so much for that. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, I told you this was going to be an awesome show. Power Pack. You might have to go back and listen to it again. Certainly worth the whole hour there. Thank you, Justin and Hustle for Humanity for the work that you're doing around the globe. And I'm just grateful that there are thought leaders and action doers, not just a thought person but you're an action doer um like you in the world so thank you so so much thanks so much and thank you for everything you do janine you're an inspiration to me in many aspects thanks awesome well we will see you next time we have an amazing guest coming up on our next show don't forget your creative health as you learned today does affect your financial wealth but also affects your wealth in other areas your relationship wealth your life wealth and your humanity wealth so go out there and create today talk to you later bye-bye Thank you for tuning in to the Create and Grow Rich podcast, where your creative health supports your financial wealth. If you'd like to contact Janine or ask her a question, 
Email her at podcast at creativewealthacademy.net. That's podcast at creativewealthacademy.net. Thanks again for joining us again today. And don't forget to live a courageous and creative life.